Dale Turner is a man who has lived many lives, a career in radio, another whole career in records, and then back to radio, all the while writing down the exploits of these careers. His book, Turner's Big Radio and Record Adventure, is a great read to say the least, and it's also the inspiration for this podcast. Dale claims the book to be the truth, or at least as best as he can remember it. Dale was a great coworker and boss to me and remains a great friend. I hope you laugh as much as I did. Here's Dale Turner. Dale Turner, the man, the myth, the legend. And that's just in your own head. <laughs> How the heck are you? I'm good, Mr. Bart. Thanks for uh, the invitation. Dude, thank you for coming out to the country, man. Hope it wasn't too long of a drive. No, hey, we both live, like, you know, outside Music City. Yes. Uh, and you're on one side of the Natchez Trace Bridge. I'm on the other. Yes. So how how long, I was trying to think, how long have we known each other? We were both at RCA. I had just gotten hired. Right. I think I was... We've known each other. Well, that would have been what at least thirty years ago. Yeah. I think now, I, were we both regionals at the same time, or had I moved to Nashville? No, you were still in Cincinnati. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Because they gave you the Midwest. Yes. Before you were hired, I was doing the Midwest and the Northeast, and then you, oh, you were brought on right. to do the Midwest. Yeah. So I could focus on the East Coast. Man. Right. Right. Long time. Yeah. So you were born in St. Louis. Love, love my uh, my hometown. Been a lifelong St. Louis Cardinal fan, and uh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Midwest guy, just like you. Absolutely, absolutely. So what what's going on with uh, sports? Are we ever going to have it back? Oh man, are you going to go to games? I'm missing it big time. I bet. I, I love sports. Uh, I got my Predators shirt on. Yes. Um, you know. I got my Wayland hat on. Different kind of <laughs> different kind of sport. <laughs> <laughs> Must be a billiards yes. thing. No, I, I love sports, and uh, I'm going crazy without you know some hockey and, and baseball. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I, my Netflix and Amazon Prime are getting a workout right now. <laughs> yeah, we just uh, TiVo'd three old Nebraska football games. Tom Osborne's first national championship. And then a bunch of stuff. It's like, and I'm watching all this kind of eye racing on, you know, which is all simulator racing and everything. And it's right. oh god, so much fun. I love it. But I looked into those simulators. I thought, well, I could, I should do that. That'd be a blast. And Amy's like, yeah, you would have so much fun. So I started looking at. They're like forty grand. Wow, for a big system. It's like, no. yeah, no, no, just nope. Yeah. Too rich for my blood. Yeah. Well. Are you from a musical family? From a musical family? No, no, I wouldn't say so. My my two brothers, I'm the middle uh, brother. Okay, they both sang in church, uh, you know. But no, none of us uh, professionally. And you know, I played in a little high school rock and roll band uh, growing up. But no, no, my mom, dad, they just were salt of the earth. Yeah. You know, uh, farmers, daughters, and sons. Man. So what what got you interested, or who got you interested in music? Well, my first, you know, passion was radio. You know, and I tell the story in my book where, you know, I'm five, six years old. Yeah. And I go over to my aunt's uh, house or my uncle's house, and, you know, they put me on their knee, and what do you want to be when you grow up? 
and you know everybody else was wanting to be an astronaut or right. or a you know baseball player but I wanted to be a DJ yeah I wanted to be I, I was fascinated by you know the disc jockeys and the radio you know music radio and uh, that's all I ever wanted to do and then my cousin when I was about 13 14 years old uh, started up a band uh Jack Turner and the Shades of Dawn. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And he said, man, be in the band. And I said, I, I don't play an instrument. So uh, he, he suggested a bass guitar. Right. And so I took a couple of weeks of bass guitar lessons, and I joined his band and uh, had a blast all during my high school years. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, what uh, the radio has always intrigued me because... I never listened to radio in the house. It's always a car thing. Right. So did you listen to radio in the house? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, Yeah, I can remember as a kid, you know, hanging out in the kitchen while mom's making, you know, making supper, and uh, I would listen to the radio, and it was like, I'd hear some DJ with all these sound effects. Right. You know, and and alter ego voices, and, (laughs) you know, they'd be uh, setting up the next song, or doing a contest, and I would like... Wow, that sounds so exciting! Yeah, how do you? What's going on inside that radio speaker? And it just became a a world of imagination for me. And and I, I caught the bug early on, man. That's what I wanted to do. So were, were you just like you've heard your own voice on the air? Were you just intrigued by other people's reaction to your voice? Well, did, uh, yeah, I think it was the other way around. Okay, I, I was you know uh, attracted to. Uh, what I heard, and I thought, man, I wish I could do that one day. Yeah. Once I became a disc jockey, uh, I don't know. I I was a format jock. Okay? What's that? What's that mean? Well, that means um, in a tightly formatted music station, mm-hmm. uh, you're executing the format. Okay. But, but you're not really. You're you're letting the music be the star. Okay. You know, I unlike. Uh, you know Jerry House. Yeah, I mean, who, he's the, he was the star of the yeah, morning show for sure, and the music was interspersed, uh, right? Just enough to sell commercials. <laughs> <laughs> but you know me, I wanted the you know the contest and the music, yeah, and everything aside from my voice to be the star, the star attraction of the station. But you knew you had a cool voice, right? I guess. I mean, it wasn't really. I don't have one of those ballsy voices, but uh, I More, thought it was animated. Yeah, I always had an animated, you know, kind of vocal presentation. And you know, be, growing up in the Midwest, uh, I had a slight accent. Right. I when I moved south to actually start my career in radio, I think some of the southern broadcasters found my Midwest accent okay. sort of you know unique and entertaining. Yeah, man. I oh, man, radio is such. I had an AM radio beside the bed when I was a kid, and I used to listen to uh, Wolfman Jack. Sure. And I used to listen, what was the, oh, I'm so dumb, the huge station out of Chicago. Larry Lujak. Yes. WLS. Yes. The Big 89. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was, you know, I I was one of those guys that, you know, if I'm driving around cruising uh, the Steak and Shake, I would uh, turn up. When the guy, when the DJ started talking, mm-hmm. I turn up the volume, and then sort of, you know, if I didn't like the song, turn that back down. I, w- I just wanted to hear 
how they said it, what they said. That was, uh, I know, very contrary to a normal average listener. Were you one of those guys that really like would go, okay, at the beginning of song A, there's 27 seconds until the first word. So you knew how long you had to talk? Yes. Yeah. And this was before digital. Right, right, right. You know, you now you can digitally talk up to 22 second yeah. intros. But you just, if you felt the song, you know, if you felt, you know, whatever it was, Santana or yeah. whatever the song was and you knew, you could just feel how long you could intro and talk up till the uh yeah vocal yeah that was like an art form come on oh dude yeah dude. so as huge of a sports fan as you are did you ever do sports radio no no well i worked in a small town radio station in sykeston missouri okay where i did the morning show but then to earn extra income i would do some bas- high school basketball games okay but that's the extent of it, you yeah. know. Everything else, um, you know, I, I spent, gosh, 20 years in radio, and 19 and a half years were all country music radio. Really? And the other six months, I worked down at, uh, on the border of Mexico at a little station, a little rock and roll station uh, in McAllen, Texas. Really? I was out of work, and I needed a gig. So uh, I did that for six months. That's the only time out of my whole career where I, I did rock and roll, it was always country. Because, you know, when I first got a job, and the first job was a country music station. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to stick with this. You know? My dad loved country music. But I didn't know much beyond Johnny Cash. Right. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to stick with country music, and I'm going to become an expert in this genre of music. And uh, it really did serve me well. Because... Mm. You know, the longer you stay in the same format, yeah. you can uh, become the music director, you can become a program director, and, you know, you really know the marketplace. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah. Yeah. Uh, weird little aside, just loving the format. I remember when I was at RCA, we got it, you know, the, the reporting panel changed all the time. Got a new station, and I'm not even going to say who it was. But I called him up and I said, hey, I'm Bart Allman. I'm your RCA Records rep. And he said, cool. Can you get me Super Bowl tickets? I went, no. <laughs> he goes, well, my pop rep could. I said, get your pop rep on the phone. See if he can get me tickets too. <laughs> he goes, okay, okay. Well, I always had music going on in the background. And Wade Jessen had just given me a Carter Family box set. Wow. So I was listening to the Carter Family and he goes, who is that in the background? I can hear some music. And I said, it's a Carter family. He goes, oh, dude, Jimmy Carter, he really whipped some ass down in Haiti, didn't he? And I'm like, yeah, okay, stop. We're going to stop right now. I go, all of our records are in good shape. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I'm going to skip calling you next week. And I want you to listen to, to, to do some research on the Carter family and figure out what they do, what they mean to country music. And he called me like two days later. He goes, dude, I had no idea. I go, I know. That's, that's kind of what's cool about country is the format doesn't change every two or three years. I mean, it, musically it does. Right. But we still have the Opry. We still have those stars, you know. We, we, and that was always something that was amazing to me about country music. Well, there's a lot of, there were a lot of radio guys that had no... Um, they had no history yeah. in the music. 
Right. I mean, they couldn't tell you, you know, uh, an artist passed two years ago. Yeah. And that's kind of a shame. Yeah. But, you know, in the world we live in right now, uh, DJs are voice tracking all sorts of different kinds of music. Different format, yeah. Yeah, so they have no respect. I, I once told my kids when they were young, I said, you know what? You don't have to love country music. Yeah. Even though I'm around it every day of, right. of, of my life. So you don't have to like it or love it. You have to respect it. Yeah. Just respect the music because that's how your dad brings home the paychecks. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, you know, one of those moments where you have to uh, teach your children uh, to respect. <laughs> teach your children well. No, Amy and I love when we're driving, she'll find a radio station or find an XM station now because we're driving and we'll play a little game and it's always like 80s radio 80s and 90s songs right and she'll like put me on the clock to how fast I can name the artist how fast I can name the song and then if I can name the record company that's like a bonus thing and it it's crazy <laughs> I mean you think about how long you were in radio and then records. I mean, mm-hmm. How many different country songs and artists you've heard? It's got to be 10,000, oh. 20,000. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. And back in the, you know, when I first got into radio business, the playlists were like 60, 70 titles. Yeah. So there was a lot more than just the old, you know, top 15 played every 90 minutes. And artists were making more than one record a year. Oh, yeah. They, they would release one single, Conway Twitty, would do like you know a single it. and six covers, <laughs> and then he'd have an, another new album, you know, eight months later. <laughs> so, do you have any idea how many radio gigs you had? How many radio jobs? Oh gosh, I used to keep track of that. I think um, you know, in my first life, I worked fourteen years in radio, and I worked at twelve radio stations. Man, yeah. And then, you know, I, I, I was in the record business for 26 years. Uh, and then after I semi-retired, you know, I worked at this station outside of Nashville yeah. uh, for another five years. Were you so, there five years? Yeah, I did more. I woke up at 4.30 in the morning every morning for five years. I, I still can't believe I, I uh, stuck it out for that long. <laughs> but, you know, I wanted to buy the radio station. Right, I remember that. And the guy uh, outbid me. And so when I left the Disney uh, record label, I thought, you know, I'm going to drive out to Dixon and introduce myself to the owner and just see who the heck bought the station. Right. And uh, so we, we got to talking. Turns out the guy used to listen to me when I was doing mornings at Kissin' and Little Rock. He, he was going wow. through college. He was, he was attending college, and he listened to me in Little Rock. So we instantly connected, and uh, he said, well, why don't you come do the morning show? And I thought, yeah, that'd be fun. So, yeah, that was a blast. I, I enjoyed that only because there was no strict, yeah, you know, rules and regulations, no tight playlist. He pretty much let me play because he said to me, he said, you know, you've worked with some of the greatest artists. Yeah. So sure. why don't you play their music and tell your stories? Tell stories. And it turned out to be a such a blessing for me. Yeah. You know, I was living in the moment. Uh, you know, bringing back all these memories. And uh, I think it's one of the reasons I started writing the book because I had extra time on my hands. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, I need to put some of these stories on paper. Well, how did you go from 
radio to records? Well, interesting fact. I was in the radio for, what, eight years before I ever knew there was such an occupation as a record promoter. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I worked at stations that weren't, you know, their playlists weren't part of the charts. Right. So they weren't reporters. And uh, I didn't know what the hell a record promoter was. Yeah. Until I came to Nashville in 1976 and uh, worked with Les Acre. Les hired me to work at WKDA. And all of a sudden, oh, you know, all these record guys are coming to his office. Yeah. And he appoints me his music director. And so now I'm exposed to all these promoters up and down Music Row. I mean, they were coming at us, you know, because KDA was, aside from WSM, was, you know, the country music station. Yeah. So, you know, that's when I uh, became interested in record promotion. I always thought that RCA was the best label. Yeah. They were the, they seemed to be the radio's best partner. Yeah. And so I left Nashville, uh, Went to Cincinnati, but before I went to Cincinnati to work at WSAI, I, I took Joe Galani out to lunch, and I said, you know, Joe, okay. uh, it's been fun knowing you, and I really, I think RCA is is a great operation, and someday I'd like to work for you. Well, I never heard anything from him. Holy cow. For four years. Okay. One day he called me up four years later and said, hey, man, come to Nashville. I want to talk to you. And it was about the Chicago Midwest Open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and the interesting thing is, there's really no manual or oh, dude. or game plan book for record promotion. No. I mean, you know, you, there's nothing on paper that says, do this, this, and this. You just have to, you know, uh, learn by osmosis. Yeah. You know, thankfully, I was in radio, so I... I treated my radio clients like I would want to be treated. Right. You know? And thank God for, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I was so blessed, Bart. I entered record promotion in the mid-80s when uh, RCA was like, dude, oh my God. I mean, they were the label. And, uh, I mean, I walked in and started representing Alabama and... uh, Clint. Well, Clint came later, but the the Judds. The Judds. They were releasing their first single when Ronnie I, Millsap. When I, Millsap was on board. Waylon was still on the label. Yep. Dolly had just left. I mean, oh it was unbelievable. The the roster yeah. was an, incredible, and I felt so intimidated <laughs> yeah. because first of all, I'd never done record promotion before, and all of a sudden, I'm surrounded by these professionals. Oh, dude. like like uh, Galen Adams, Carson, and Tim Mc, Tim McFadden, Carson Schreiber, uh, Jack Weston. Was still doing the. Uh, was Bruce still there? Bruce came shortly after. Okay. Yeah, yeah Jack, absolutely. Yeah. Jack Weston was doing the Southwest. Bob Heatherly was the head of promotion. Yep. Mike Searles was his sidekick. And Nashville. Joe. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we had an incredible Dude. staff. And I, I, I write in my book about how the fear of failing is what motivated me. You know, I didn't want to be the regional that let the record down, that let the rest of the team down yeah. on any given week on the charts. So I, I worked my ass off to uh, <laughs> at least get my share of the competitive airplay. I remember going to, to branches for branch meetings, and you'd have the big conference room, Oh yeah, and the pop guys would be in there, 
and they'd go around the table, you know, for a scorecard check on the records. And the pop guys would go, man, this week on blah, blah, blah record, we got, you know, so-and-so in Detroit. And they give them a standing ovation. I'm going like, you got one ad? Yeah. They go, Bart, how are you doing on, on the Clint Black record? I go, well, I got 27 out of 29 done the first week. Nothing. Okay, move along. Let's. Oh, buddy, I can relate to that. Man. And it was like you were just expected yeah. to lead the whole field. I remember though one time, and I want to ask you about this. <laughs> we had a boss who I will not name because we both love and respect him. There was. I was just telling Amy this. I said the charts would come out five or six o'clock, six thirty on Monday nights. Yeah. We would get the charts, and over on Monday nights at home or whatever, we'd sit there and we'd look and who added the record, who didn't add the record, what the rotations were like, whatever they were like. And then Tuesday morning, I think 9 o'clock, we had our conference call. Well, one particular bad night, we had a conference call at like 7 o'clock. Well, for you and Cincy, that was 8 o'clock. Right. So you started the whole call pissed off, and <laughs> we could tell that. And our boss kept <laughs> Our boss kept saying, we got to put the hammer down. Got to put the hammer down. We got to hammer down on this record. We got to hammer down on this record. We got to hammer down on this record. We got to put the hammer down. We got to put the hammer down. And at the end of it, he said, okay, I'm going to go around the room. I want, I want all of you to tell me what you're going to do this week to make this happen. And you just said, well, I don't know about the rest of you guys, but I'm going to go out and buy a big old bag of hammers. <laughs> and then it was just crickets. Yeah, because I guess that was... Uh... And he was pissed. Yeah, he was mad because that was not what he wanted to hear. (laughs) But the thing is, you know, it's like I thought to myself, if I ever become a VP of promotion, you know, that I'm never going to use that, you know, that uh, cliche. Yeah, the whole hammer thing was just that's that's not good direction. But the the my favorite thing was you were so always so gracious to me because I was the new dumb kid with a big mouth that I could I called you after most conference calls, right? What does he mean by that? What does he want us to do? What are you, how are you doing, you know? And so I remember calling you and just laughing my butt off because of you just crickets. Well, that's just my cynical uh, uh, view of how a a conference call should be handled. That was not good. That was not good. But you know, when I was younger in the promotion game, I would, after a call, I would reach out to Carson Schreiber. I mean, he was, yeah. he was the big yada yada man on the West Coast. Oh, man. And I would call him and say, how are you working this record? Yeah. You know, like we had the Joel Saunier. Oh, dude. Okay? Lovely person. Yep. Good guy. Great music. Cajun country music. Yep. But guess what? It's pretty damn hard to get a record yep. that sounds like Cajun played in Minnesota. Yeah. Or Wisconsin. You know, maybe polka music. Well, maybe polka country. But, you know, that was tough. <laughs> And I you would tell Carson, I said, Carson, an accordion in it. <laughs> how do you get that played in Bakersfield? Yeah. You know, and he'd give me some tips on, you know, how to work, you know, the radio guy or girl. Me and Keith Gale did the same thing. Yeah. After he came on board, he would go like, hey, it's Keith calling from my station zero. <laughs> 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 we would talk. So it was Joe that moved you to to Nashville? Yes. Oh, no, no, no. Joe hired me to go to Chicago to be a regional. Is that what you ask? And then uh, Tom Schuyler 
hired me out of Cincinnati. But you never moved to Chicago, though, did you? I did. I did. Oh, you did? Yeah, I was seven years up there. Oh, I don't know why I don't... Okay. Yeah, seven years in in uh, Chicago. I remember the first time I went down That's to, right. to call on US-99. Uh, uh, J.D. Spangler? I was so intimidated. Oh, You dude. know, just with the traffic and the, the size of the city. And they're on the 13th floor? Yeah. So, you know, you what I did was the first time I went down there, I parked my car in a lot and just took a cab to the Hancock Center. Oh, dude. I never I, thought about Because I didn't that. want to deal with all the traffic. Yeah. Know? And, uh, but... You know, thank God Lee Logan was a uh, a great programmer, and uh, I. But before that, uh, my first job as an RCA rep was to take Ronnie Millsap to the CBS studios in Chicago to tape Phil Donahue. Oh man! Yeah, and and Kalani had told me he and Bob Heatherly said after he tapes the Phil Donahue show, take him uh, to all the country stations for interviews. And at the time, there were three stations. US 99, WMAQ, and uh, WJJD. Man. And I remember I ran out of camera film after the second station. So we went to the last station to do an interview. I just <laughs> pretended that I was taking pictures with the camera. There was no film. <laughs> and then when I, you know, I got back home and I got a call from Galani and he says, uh, Turner, the next time you're out with a star, the stature of Ronnie Millsap, Get a limbo, because I had I just been taxi cabbing him around oh, to the stations, and I, you know, and all I could think to uh, to reply is, well, you know, Ronnie's blind, and it, what, what difference does it make? I, I didn't I didn't score any high marks there. My favorite thing, or not my favorite thing, because I can't count, but uh, his tour manager Phil, yes, remember Phil? Phil Jones, Phil Jones. The first time I met him. It's Ronnie and Phil, and Phil's got his arm inside Ronnie's arm. Right. And I can see him lean over and talk to him. Hey, it's Bart from the label or whatever. And I said, hey, Ronnie, it's Bart Allman from RCA. Nice to meet you. And he said, nice to see you. <laughs> and I always, I've always wondered, is that just the parlance of our times, or, or was he just like screwing with me? He was trying to make you feel comfortable. <laughs> yeah. And what I loved about Ronnie was if he knew you were at the show, covering oh, the show, he'd always give you a shout-out from yep. the stage. Yep. So, you know, what a, first of all, it takes a lot of concentration and, and a great memory to remember to do that yeah. as part of your show. So I always appreciated that. Yeah, what an amazing singer. I agree. Um, so you worked with Alabama a bunch. That had to be... Well, Alabama a- paid the bills, yeah. You know that, Bart. Yeah. They paid the bills in the 1980s. Yeah. I mean, they were the superstar, hottest act. Weren't they at one point like 90% of RCA Nashville? I don't know what the market share was. Okay. But chart share, probably. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Alabama was uh, great to work with. I've always said <laughs> they, they were a clinic on how to conduct business. Especially Randy. Yeah. Randy knew the drill uh, when it came to radio, backstage, working the retailers. Yeah. You know, back then he would fly to uh, Detroit and Minneapolis yeah. and actually sit down with the buyers of uh, music. Uh, what, what what was the name of it? Music Land. Oh yeah, yeah. Or or the buyers at Target, Target, or Minneapolis, Walmart, yeah, or wherever. Anderson and 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 help sell in the album, which is an amazing thing uh, to think about. They, they just don't do that these days. Well, of course, we don't have retail anymore. Right. Yeah. But yeah, Alabama. I love those guys. Um, they had like, if you don't count the uh, 
uh, well, they had a song called Pass It On Down, which was an Earth Day right. uh, release. It didn't go number one, but I think they had 20 number ones uh, all through the 1980s. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of great memories of uh, Randy and the boys, you know, getting mm-hmm. pranked on the bus, uh, you know. And I remember Randy one, one night sent me home. They were doing a two-night deal in, uh, at the county, not, at the state fair mm-hmm. in Minnesota. And he, and he said, after the first night, he says, go home and be with your family. Oh. You know, yeah. I, we got this covered, man. If there's any other radio or backstage guests tomorrow night, we'll take care of it. Did Greg Fowler and those cats? Oh, they, yeah. Nothing. Do you remember the song that was there in the middle of that streak that was not the first number one? I do, sir. What is it? Tar Top. Yes. Tar Top. In fact, I got into a little discussion <laughs> with Mr. Uh, Owen because uh, in his book, he wrote an autobiography. And, oh. Yeah, I can't remember, but it, he had a whole chapter on Tar Top. Where are you going, Tar Where, Top? Of course, there's songs about him. Yeah. And we, as a promo team, took that record top five, but it did not go number one. Yep. And he says that he was very disappointed that his RCA promo team let him down <laughs> on that record. But what he doesn't realize, I, th- I think to this day, is that we worked our butts off on that oh, record dude. that was a hard sell and and for whatever reason it didn't quote unquote research yeah and uh, so we we didn't get it to number one and uh yeah so i had a little friendly uh, discussion with him and when his book came out <laughs> jack weston one time just came around the corner and looked at me and goes where are you going tar top i thought what the <laughs> crap are you even talking about <laughs> I had no idea. Was that before you came along? No, it was what, yeah, Tartop was, yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, a sad moment because you, you want that continuous number one streak to continue forever. But, you know, nothing's forever. And that leads me to another uh, opinion that I have, yes. and I included in my book, is that, you know, number ones are great. Yeah. I mean, they, they are the flag-bearing... Um, in this town anyway, end all. Uh, but you know what? There's a lot of records that go top five that get edged out at the, for the number one spot, but they maybe just had like 30 less spins. Yeah. You know, all across the country. They just lost out that given week. It doesn't make that song any less Dude. of a successful effort. But man, uh, everything depends on number one. It's just, uh, it's just the nature of our business. I don't remember who the three records are. There was Lori Morgan, uh, Ronnie Millsap, and one more. And we had all three of them in the top five. And I remember yep. big strategy meetings trying to get this one to number one, then this one to number one, then this one to number one. And we ended up getting how many to number one? None. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. But yeah. I remember, and you may have moved on to CBS, but... Were you there during the early Martina McBride days? Oh, yeah. Well, you may recall, yeah, uh, Martina had a record peak at number two. Yeah. The Way I Am. Okay. And the artist that kept us out of number one was Garth Brooks. Mm. And at the time, she was She's opening, on the road with Garth. She, yeah, she was touring yeah. with Garth. And Garth was a much more established act. Yeah. And yet we only lost to Garth by like three spins. And it was, you know, of course devastating that we couldn't get it to one but 
I, I just tried to convince the artist manager that, dude, we we did everything we could possibly yeah. do without you know going over the edge or under the table right to accomplish it. Who was her manager? He's from uh, Canada. Uh, Bruce Allen. Bruce Allen. Manager Brian. Uh, Brian Adams. Brian Adams. Yeah. Man. So, who was your first baby act at RCA? Because you said when you jumped in there, you had Waylon and Ronnie Millsap in Alabama. Who was your first baby act? Uh, Leon Everett. Leon Everett had a song called Hurricane. Okay. And I remember, you know, my first week on the road, I was, you know, trying to get airplay ads on the playlist with Leon. And we also had our first Judd's record. And we were trying to get inside the top 20. So that was my focus that entire week. But after Leon Everett, you know, we had uh, Bailey and the Boys. Okay, yeah. Uh, At one point, we were working Marie Osmond, um, trying to think. Uh, I know, it's so many, I don't know. I I seem to, you know, remember the the more positive... uh, (laughs) uh, you know, projects like uh, Foster and Lloyd. Oh, dude. You know, and then shortly after, Keith Whitley. Faster and Louder. Oh, dude, Keith Whitley, man. Come yeah. on. What a, what a, what a tragedy that yeah. was. Yeah. But he was a great guy. He had some great stories, you know, hauling him around the country on oh, a man. radio promo tour and then seeing him open for Hank Jr., uh, it was it was a it was a short run for Keith, but it was outstanding. He opened for Hank Jr. I know it doesn't seem like a good fit, does it? Uh-uh. But here's my quick story on that. Yes, please. I, I'm I'm sitting on the bus with Keith, and he had done his opening set. I think we were in uh, Columbus, Ohio. I, I don't somewhere up there. And um, who's Hank's uh, boss? Uh, his road manager? Oh, Kilgore, Merle Kilgore. Merle, yeah. He comes on the bus and he goes, "Hey, Keith." Um, Hank wants you to join him on stage. You know, he's going to do his song, Family Tradition, or All My Rowdy Friends. I can't remember the song. But, yeah. Uh, so, Keith, come on back inside, and we're going to bring you on stage. Hank's going to bring you on. So, you know, Keith and I and a couple guys from the bus, we were standing side stage, <laughs> and Hank Jr. does the song and forgets to bring Keith <laughs> on stage. <laughs> And, and Kilgore's like doing the hand signals, right. like Hank, you know, Bocephus. <laughs> and he finally gets Hank's attention as the song ends. And Hank remembers, oh, yeah, I was going to bring on Keith Whitley. So he does the song again. <laughs> <laughs> he just starts it up again and does the same song and then brings on Keith. I thought that was hilarious. <sighs> There's, there's just so much. So how long, how much were you on the road? Because, I mean, you were married, had two kids. I was single. I was just doing whatever. I mean, how did you balance that kind of stuff? Well, obviously, I didn't do a very good job um, <laughs> my first go-round. Right. You know, I divorced when I was working at WKDA in Nashville okay. in the late 70s. Um I was married to my high school sweetheart, mm. and I thought that was going to last forever. Yeah. And she just got tired after about seven years of me dragging her around the country yeah. doing different radio gigs. So she uh, she's called it quits. And uh, and then I, you know, subsequently moved to Cincinnati, mm-hmm. kind of get a fresh start, 
working at a radio station there that uh, was a powerhouse. And uh, I met my wife, Patty, uh, on a blind date. Really? Yeah. I don't know if I ever knew that. Yeah, we met on a blind date, and uh, she was not impressed at all that I was a radio (laughs) DJ. She could care less. And I thought, hey, this is going to work. Yeah, exactly. This could work out. And I I promised her, I said, you know what, I'm going to get it right this time. You and I are going to... You know, have a long life together. Yeah. And I'm going to do my best. Uh, and she was so supportive. She always knew that I was going to be traveling a lot. Yeah. Uh, and she knew that, you know, the stresses that happen to record guys, especially when you're the head of promotion and you can't go to sleep on a Sunday night because you, oh, you don't know how you're going to, you know, how the playlist is going to uh, yeah. uh, play out on, on Monday. I mean, every Monday is a report card. I mean, it was worse than radio. At least in radio... We weren't getting ratings that you live and die by, but every three months. Dude. But in the record business, it's every freaking Monday. I don't know how many times I told that to a radio station. Dude, we got four books a year. I go, really? I got 52. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Yeah. It's a, it's a brutal... Yeah. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. We made a good living. But, Absolutely. But it was not without its stressful moments. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sometimes... I mean, like in the 80s, RCA was on a roll, and you could use Alabama and even the Judds as leverage, yep. you know, to get your, your baby acts played. Uh, but man, when things didn't work out, you know, and you're trying to convince the, uh, the head of the label or the artist manager why this song is not working. Or the know, artist. And why this artist is not at a level that this artist, you know, that they think the other artist, it's just... Uh, didn't you love being in a car going from one radio station to the next radio station with the artist and they start that conversation? Oh, buddy. And you and you just you feel for them and you love them to death. Oh. But there's no easy answers to any of that stuff and you can't you don't want to hurt their feelings. In my book I write about uh, my two weeks on the road with Vince Gill. Yeah. And I you know during that period of visiting radio stations, oh, and, and I find out from Nashville that the record, his his single died like at 26 yeah. on the national charts, and I'm with him, and I have to tell him. I have to I have to explain <laughs> to him, and and he was so bummed, but he was a trooper, man. He yeah. he carried on, did the rest of the radio visits, and uh, and then of course uh, we put another single out, but yeah, it's tough, man. Man, I remember uh, <laughs> being. Hotel bar after some radio station with a, a certain artist, and he looks over at me and he goes, and "This is a different conversation." But he goes, "How come you call some acts artists, but you always call me a singer?" Wow! And I, I judged how far his arm could go to not hit me in the face. <laughs> And I said, please understand this in the best way. I said, I don't. I think you're a great singer, but I don't think there's a lot of art in what you do. Now, here's another act I was working with, the Dixie Chicks. I said, I think there's a lot of art in what they do. I said, I also, I'm a huge, 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 huge George Strait fan. I think he's a great singer. I'm not sure there's a ton of art in what he does. And he just looks at me and he goes, Okay, I guess I understand that. All right. I go, well, you know, it's like, and you're you're playing psychologist on the road all the time. Oh, yeah. 
you're a psychologist, you're a, a deal maker, you're yeah. a, a travel agent. I mean, you're all sorts of things. Dude. I mean, that, that's not a, as easy as it looks gig. Can you imagine if we would have had Google Maps back then? I know. How awesome that would have been. I know. We had to get out the map, uh, you know, the <laughs> atlas, and try and get from point A to point B. I remember I was on the road with KT Oslin, <sighs> and we were, go, move, uh, I think, Dayton to Columbus okay. to visit a station. And uh, Jack Weston was in the car with us. And I I drive into Columbus, and then I realize I have never been to this radio station. Okay. I always met the music director at a bar or... Restaurant or A restaurant or or at a concert hall. Oh, yeah. And uh, I had to stop and and get out and find a payphone because, you know, we didn't have cell phones back then. And uh, try and find out where the radio station was. And Weston gave me shit about that. For the rest of my uh, career. Oh, yeah, you've been working that Columbus station for, what, 10 years? You don't know where it's at? Yeah. <laughs> or I would also love, you'd land in Grand Rapids, call WBCT and ask directions, and the sweet front desk lady would go, I don't really know how to get here from the airport. What? <laughs> what? She'd probably never been to the airport. Probably not. It's like, how long have you worked? 19 years. <laughs> Son of a gun. But my favorite story is the uh, first time I went through the state of, of uh, Iowa as, you know, as part of my region, and I called the guy at uh, Fort Dodge, KWMT, mm-hmm. and I said, hey, man, I just left Des Moines. I'm on my way to see you. I got, you know, we, we have our appointment. I don't know how to get to your station. So what he does, he says, well, just listen. Listen to me. I'll give, and he, and he, he goes on the air, dude. Yeah, was I that have, was that Big Red or? Uh, yeah, Big Red was there that before or Dale we went to Florida. Oh yeah, might have been. But, Dale. but and one of those two guys actually got on the air and said, "Hey, my RCA rep is on his way, and I hope he picks up some donuts." Um, <laughs> we're going to be doing an Elvis trivia contest soon. He says, "Now, Dale, when you get to the railroad tracks, hang a right." And, and that's my story. <laughs> Did that happen to you too? Yes, up in Minnesota, <laughs> right up above, uh, uh, right up above Minneapolis, and it was under the railroad tracks and turned right. <laughs> but I just, I thought that was so yeah. wild that they would go on the air yep. and be so nonchalant and uh, casual about, you know, helping their rep, you know, record rep, get to their radio station. So why did you leave RCA? Well, my contract was not renewed. Oh, okay. That was uh, 1997. You the VP then? I was. In fact, uh, remember when Galani came back from New York? Yes. And he made some personnel changes. Yep. And, and I, he put me in charge of BNA Records for yep. a couple of years. And then he made me the head of promotion for both BNA and RCA. Right. But then he brought in Butch Waugh. Yep. And all of a sudden, my contract was not renewed. So after 14 years of loyalty. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, pushed out of the deal, but that's okay. Because yeah. you know what? Uh, one door closes so that another can open. And uh, Randy Goodman hired me to come over to uh, Disney. You know, the new Disney label, yeah. Eric Street Records. And I had a 12 year run there. So, so you had Randy, you, Carson. Was there any other ex RCA guys over there? Well, Ter- remember Teresa Durst? Oh, Teresa Durst. Yeah, she was uh, an RCA alum. Yep. And Teresa uh, Russell. Russell yep. became Randy's right-hand uh, person. I was just thinking about her the other day. I haven't seen her in forever. Yeah. Hmm. So, yeah, we, uh, you know, I I, I just uh, didn't get my contract renewed. 
And a week later, I'm, I'm working at another uh, startup, and it was a, a wonderful, wonderful dozen years. I really enjoyed it. Do you have any uh, say-so in Axe? Any what? Axe, any say-so in who you signed over there? No. Although I will say, <clears throat> um, Randy would always you know, call in the promotion team yeah. and say, hey, we're thinking about signing this American Idol finalist. Okay. What do you guys think? You know, do you think it's radio friendly? Uh, do you see or hear any commercial success? And then, you know. Yeah. I was, you know, I never wanted to be part of the creative process. Right. See, unlike you, Bart, you know, musician, songwriter, <laughs> I was all commerce. Yeah. All commerce. You know, if we agreed on an act or if they, you know, if they said this is our new act that we signed, I would immediately go to work and create a promotion strategy yeah. and a game plan for airplay. And then, you know, at Lyric Street, we would get together with Greg McCarn, yeah. create a marketing uh, plan. <coughs> and, you know, that's how we would do business. Um, I never wanted to be the guy in A&R. Right. Uh, that's more your bailiwick. You were a lot smarter than me. That's why when I was listening on my headset in the dark in my office one night on hold, playing a Telecaster, and Joe just walked in and went, that's why we never have any number ones. Ooh. And just walked out. <laughs> yeah. No, I was thinking of, of a couple of stories about you, and I know in your book you say, this is how I remember it. I do. This may not be right, but I was thinking about uh, not only the bag of hammers, but I remember going to have lunch with Waylon and his whole staff at their house there on Music Row. I remember that day. And they made white bean chicken chili. I just remember thinking, like, this is the best thing ever. And I remember Waylon started telling stories, and holy cow, it's like, <laughs> I have no idea how this story ends, but I remember him talking about Willie, and he always called Willie Shorty. Ah. And he's going, you know, one time, man, me and Willie, or me and Shorty, and he looked at me and he goes, you know, Shorty'd smoke a pickle if he could get it lit. And then he just went right back into the story, and I'm like, what the crap? <laughs> he would smoke a pickle if he could get it lit. But you think about, I, just, I, I broke my wrist, and I had a black cast on it. And then right then, Waylon had carpal tunnel surgery, and he had two black casts. And he came in with a Shotzi. Yeah, and I was coming out of the bathroom or out of the kitchen or whatever, and he just looked down at my cast and he goes, "Man, everybody wants to be like Waylon," and then he just walked <laughs> off. I was like, oh, "That's the coolest thing ever!" Isn't it amazing? Some of the oh uh, my gosh memories we have of certain moments in time uh, that was uh, you know representing Waylon's music yeah. was a highlight for me because that's how I that was Waylon was my guy. He convinced me that country music was cool, and you know it had oh. an edge to it. And I just loved uh, the notion when I came to the Nipper yeah. that I was going to be able to, you know, to cover Waylon concerts. I still think it's unbelievably cool that on uh, Dukes of Hazard, his character's name is the storyteller because he was, he was such a great storyteller, and he loved telling stories. Yeah, you know, yeah, oh, man. Well, when you write your book, Bart, you're going to be, it's all going to be about the, uh, you know, the characters, 
that you've uh, been able to meet and work with, and the songs <laughs> and the music. But if you read my book, honestly, I, I don't really go into in a lot of depth or detail on the songs, you know, because mm. I was so busy trying to get a particular artist or song up the charts. Yeah. So it, it became about, it was like a war effort. It's a, it was a war mm. plan. And I, I couldn't concern myself trying to convince the radio guy that the song was better than right. the competitor's song. I just, you know, I mean, I had the passion mm. yeah. in my heart to talk and promote it yeah. uh, as great music. But honestly, sometimes you just have to skirt that issue and work your deal. Except put the hammer down. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I've never told you this, but you are the reason that I do a podcast. Really? Yeah. Because I, after I bought your book, Turner's Big Radio and Record Adventure, which is awesome. It's like Pee Wee Herman's oh, Big man, Adventure. It's so great. Every I would I was reading it in bed every night every night and and Amy knows how much I love you and Patty and I'm reading this book and it's like holy crap I go listen to this and I, <laughs> and I kept thinking like I don't know that I'd have told that story if I you know yeah and, and after I don't know after ten years of us being married or together Amy this book came out and she goes. And she's heard all of my stories and whatever crap and rolled her eyes more times than she can count. And she goes, you need to write a book. And I said, absolutely not. Well. No, because I I just said some of the things I've done, I'm not proud of. Likewise. And my parents don't need to know about them. (laughs) And I said, also, some of the things that happened on the road, these guys weren't with their current wives. And I said, I don't want to break up a marriage. And I also don't want to go sign waivers with everybody. And so I said, that's not going to happen. Yeah, but I wanted to be truthful and honest. And, and, you know, this was uh, a story of my life. And I... It is what it is. I didn't. Oh, I'm not going to change it. You know, yeah. I, I originally had a, a, a publishing deal with uh, Reader's Digest. Oh yeah. And when I submitted the manuscript, all of a sudden they're like, "Oh no, you can't write that about <laughs> Kenny Chesney uh, unless you right. get permission." Right. And it's like, "Oh no, you have to change that unless you want to change it to a fictitious name." You can't. And put after it in about here. six months, I went, "Screw this." This is crazy. You can't put in here, guess what's in Dale's mouth. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Another fun radio story. But no, that's when when Amy came back to me and said, well, then you need to do a podcast. I said, great. What's a podcast? (laughs) (laughs) So she had to, but that was this. Well, maybe this is your version of, you know, getting your uh, your, your memories out. Yeah, I well, I wanted to leave something behind, some oh, kind of dude. tangible it's such a great evidence book. for my my children, grandchildren, and great pictures, man. I I wish I wish I would have taken more pictures, not to the like the Charlie Monk level of pictures, yeah. But I still I wish I would have taken more pictures. Well, I, on my website, if anybody cares, they can go to my website. It's, yes, it's thedaleturner.com. and on my website, I've got another gallery of photos. Yes. that I did not include in the book. You know, of other artists and, you know, uh, situations. It's uh, fun, man. Sometimes we'll get these pictures and I'll start talking to Ron Stricker for 
hours about what we used to do with Clint in Detroit or whatever, man. It was just, it was a, it's a real, it's a real fraternity, it you is. know, cause you're going through the struggle with each other yeah. and you're all fighting for the same goal. And that's what I, I think that I miss even today in life is not being part of a team. Yeah. I, I, I know what you're saying. The promotion guys from different record companies. Yeah. I mean, they, they, can relate to each other absolutely i can't relate to a, a licensing company guy yeah i can't relate to a, a booking agent you know and these are all related uh, industries yeah in, in the music biz I, but you know you get five or six promo guys together and they're there's it's a fraternity well you probably have common friends and common enemies right and how do you deal with this guy, you know, because oh, yeah. I, I can't get anything through to him. Oh, yeah. Once a month up in Chicago, when I was a regional, we would get together. George Reiner with oh, yeah. Warner Brothers and, yeah. and, and and Bob Walker at Capitol and oh, man. Steve Massey with uh, CBS. Yeah. We'd all get together and have at least one lunch a month where we'd just bitch and moan about, <laughs> you know, the, the lack of airplay in Detroit <laughs> and, uh, you know, whatever the situation was. You know, and, and what, what artist are you pulling your hair out about? Yeah. You know, et cetera, et cetera. Man, I do have one uh, one complaint about your book. Okay. I The Coyote, Calhoun, the toupee story. Yeah. I really think that was me and Mike. Were you in the back that night? I don't. the car? I don't know that I, I thought it was me and Mike and Coyote. Well, I know Bobby Craig was in the front seat. So okay, but we had. I mean, there's a lot of us in that. Maybe car. that was a bunch of people. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Who did I confuse you with? No, I wasn't in the car in your story. Oh, okay. And so I was. But you remember him throwing us? Oh yeah. Yeah. Stuck it up in there, <laughs> in the in the dash, and that was the first time I'd ever seen him. I know it shocked the shit out of me, and I love Coyote. Oh, dude. So I'm not. You know, I'm not being. No, 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 no. Mr. Negative on, on Coyote. I think he was, he, he's a deserving Hall of Famer. Yep, absolutely. But, uh, I always thought he was an interesting couple of guys. What a character, man. And he was always number one in yep. his market in Louisville. But that night, man, we, we all drank too much wine. And yep. when he threw his toupee off, I was like, I don't know where to look. I don't know what to do. Oh, I know. <laughs> Dude, it's like, I, I don't want to see that. <laughs> Because were we playing new songs or something? And oh, yeah. it was really loud. We're sitting in the car playing a, a CD or cassette of and some he was, new music. And he was trying to tell us, shut that crap off. <laughs> Evidently, it was, uh, oh shoot, what's his name? Eddie? Eddie Haskell? No, the artist. Oh, Eddie London. Eddie London. It was probably Eddie London. Oh my God. <laughs> you know what? I When I lived in Cincinnati and, and, and did record yeah. promotion... I thought I did a hell of a job putting together that showcase. Oh, yeah. This is when you fly in like 30 radio stations, you know, music directors, program directors. And we had a fun weekend going to a Reds game, going to the horse track, uh, you know, had a riverboat dinner or whatever the hell it was. Yeah. I thought it was a well-executed showcase. The only thing missing was... The star. The artist (laughs) and the music. Didn't quite work out. But, you know, hey. Was it Ronnie Rogers? Ronnie was, was the producer. Was his, I think so. Yeah. I know that Eddie was brought to RCA through Alabama. Yeah. Those guys wanted that that act to uh, mm. to be a priority. And, and we spent so much money on Eddie London. 
Oh my God. I remember on the uh, CRS New Faces show, Eddie was on that show, and Mike Searles and I ended up underneath our table because <laughs> we were just so embarrassed. It's like, is there any chance of us crawling out of here? Probably not. Yeah. Hey, man, but uh, it's like, I'll take my marching orders. Dude. You know? That's your job. I mean, because what happens is for every success story, like Clint Black or the Judds, they throw off enough revenue yeah. to keep us in business. Yeah. I mean, we, we're there to sell records. I mean, we, uh, you know, if a record goes number one but doesn't sell any product, you know, what's the point? And, and there's been a lot of turntable hits. And, and they've been, and the promo team has done such a great job that we turned a song that nobody wanted to buy into mm. a number one how would you, chart. How would you deal with it today with seriously nobody selling music? Because, I mean, down the hall there, I've got those two Dixie Chicks Diamond Awards. We sold 30 million records. And and now, 30 million then. But, I mean, now... I don't know, Bart. I don't know how business is being done. I mean, how, how are record labels staying in business? Uh, they say they're generating revenue off of streaming, but, but that's not true. I don't know the answer. I don't, I'm, I'm uh, not smart enough to understand how it works now. If you look at Spotify as a writer, a million downloads, a million streams is $6,000. Okay, so I have two or maybe three writers. We all have co-pubs, so we have three writers, six publishers, and we've got a split net 6000 bucks on a million streams. Jeez. So how are how are people making money? How are record companies making money? I don't is know. It, is it all 360 deals? And I got a part of your tickets and part of your T-shirts and part of everything else? Yeah, I mean, I suppose if, if artists are making, are signing contracts now in a 360 situation, yeah. um, but even those aren't generating Man. huge merch or, uh, or tour tickets. I mean, I don't know. In 2005, when I was still at Lyric Street, Rascal Flatts released an album, and their first week sales were a half a million units. Yeah. Okay? Now, here we are 15 years later, and, and I read in the trades that a number one album sold 36,000 copies. Yeah. I mean, do the math. How in the hell is anyone making any money? So, I, I, I'm... I'm leaving that up to the younger guys. I'm 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 out of the business, and God bless them. Yeah, you know, there's new ways of working uh, radio, or maybe there's I guess deals that uh, generate money that I don't know. I, would you ever get back into it? No, I wouldn't either. No, 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 no. I I I can now go to sleep on Sunday nights. Yeah, and uh, I don't have to get up on Monday and. You know, as the head of promotion, man, I uh, I just hated Mondays. Yeah. Even when the charts came out and they were in your favor, I enjoyed them. I, I didn't enjoy them because I knew I had to repeat that next week. Well, you could look at your watch and go, okay, this is cool. Now there's tomorrow. Right. And you had to set up the next promotion conference man. call. No, I, I don't miss it at all. And, and, uh, and it was very good to me for a few years. Yeah. But, uh, you know, having to be at the mercy of artist managers and the head of the label who, you know, didn't agree with your assessment of the charts, um, all those people, all those 
secondary uh, peripheral partners that you deal with, you know, publicists and uh, artist managers and uh, booking agents. <laughs> Regionals. Oh. Well, no, that was part of your team. You love those guys, you know. Uh, but no, outside your office. One you know, of my favorite stories after you were became VP and you were a great boss. I was a horrible boss when I got to Sony, but we had a, uh, a number one Shenandoah record and we were in your office and all of Shenandoah and Bill, uh, Bill Carter, Bill Carter was on the phone. Great book, by the way, his book. Yes. Uh, <laughs> he's going like, man, what can we do to thank you guys? And I said, you know what guys, nothing says thanks like a Rolex. And then I just hear, uh, oh shoot, drummer's name. Oh, horrible story. But he goes, man, Bill, how much Rolex cost? <laughs> it's like, no, 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 no. It's like, we're not doing that. But, well, I remember Bill uh, never gave us a Rolex, but no, we didn't. he uh, sent us some plaques. He had, he had plaques made up, you know, of Shenandoah's. Oh, yeah. And number one record. and On every chart in the world. Yeah. And, and I sent mine back. I returned mine. <gasps> Did you really? Yeah, because, you know... All the way up the chart, you know, he would be badgering us about why we didn't have this station yet or why, you know, how did that other record jump us and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I had enough of that. I just sent it back with a note saying, you know, we're either your team every week for 13 weeks or we're not. That's the ballsiest thing I've ever heard. That's awesome. I don't know, man. It's it's a crazy life, man. Weird way to make a living, but... uh, uh, you know, I don't think I would trade it. I, I don't have any regrets. No. You know, um, probably wished I would have spent a little bit more time at home, but yeah. uh, that's because I had a problem delegating. Yeah. So I'd, if I saw a problem in uh, San Francisco or or in Miami, I'd just get on a plane and try and do it myself. Man, I w- uh, my, the <clears throat> most I was ever on the road was 232 days. Wow. And it was after I got divorced my second divorce, which is really fun to talk about. And my dad just said, you know what? Uh, you ever going to deal with this? I went, yeah, not today, but I'm yeah. going to deal with it. And man, it's, it, it just takes it out of you. It's, it does. It, it's hard. Yeah. But, uh, wow. It's a fun it, job though. It gave me a lot of, uh, stories to write about in my book. Man. And by the way, I, uh, in retrospect, I should have written two different books, you know, because one book could be filled with nothing but radio stories. Oh, yeah. And the whole radio career. Yeah. And then the other book could be all about the record promotion oh, business, uh, because it really is, it was a, a tale of two uh, uh, lifestyles. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, do you want to do my lightning round? Do your what? Lightning round. Sure, let's do it, man. This is just, I'm going to ask you, I don't know what this is, 10 questions. And just top of your head, what's your favorite book? Um, the, the one I read about Phil Jackson. Oh, cool. And his triangle offense. Oh, yeah. I love Phil Jackson. I think he, as a coach, he was genius. Yeah. But no I can't doubt. remember the name of the book. But, yeah, that was the one. I think it was called Dale Turner is a Genius. <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you a bath or a shower guy? Shower. Nice. Shower all the way. What's the last gift you gave someone? 
Wow. Well, I, uh, I'm drawing a blank, but it was probably something from my grandsons. Yeah. You know, one's going to be a teenager next month and, uh, one of them is going to be 23. And I, you know, I'll tell you, I bought my grandson, the 23 year old, a, a car. It was a used yeah. car, but he needed a car. So I got him a car. So I guess that was my latest gift. That's awesome. What is the first concert you saw? How old were you? And did you get a T-shirt? You know what? I've, I've heard this question before, and I honestly cannot remember attending a concert yeah. growing up in high school. You know, I played in this little rock and roll band, and uh, we played a bunch of teen towns and movie theaters, uh, amusement parks, but I can't remember... There was a local uh, band called Bob Cuban and the Inman, and they had a song called The Cheater, and I think maybe I saw them play somewhere in St. Louis. How come we don't have bands like that anymore, like Dale Turner and the Insiders or right. something? Like, we don't have that anymore. That's <laughs> <laughs> so cool. So what, were you, what would you be doing if you, if you hadn't found radio and or records? Is it what, I mean, would you be do, like in baseball or something? Well... Uh, if I f- could find a way to earn a living yeah. in sports, and uh, yeah, I guess I would love to do that, uh, work for a baseball team. Uh, but you know what? There was never a question, Bart, that I was not going to be in radio. Yeah, I mean, it was in my heart and soul from age five. So, Man. you know, I would have just kept plugging away yeah. until some station hired me, you know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think that's the true answer. So what uh, music are you listening to these days? Well, it's interesting because I'm, I'm starting to go back and pick up some vinyl albums. Okay. And, you know, when I met my wife, Patty, she's five years older than I am. So when I was a kid loving the Stones and the Beatles and, you know, the Motown in the 60s, yeah. she, had, she, she loved the Torch Singers. Okay. Which I never got into until we married... And then I became a real fan of Sinatra, Tony Bennett, you know, uh, Nat King Cole. Yeah. And so now I'm trying to find those albums out there uh, that I can put on the old turntable and just sit back and, you know, sip on a beer or have a glass of wine and, <laughs> and appreciate that kind of music. Yeah. So I guess I'm, I'm retro. You know, I'm old school. I can't tell you... Uh, I mean, once I got out of record promotion, I'll tell you, I don't look at charts anymore. No. I, could, I couldn't tell you who's in the top 10. No. And when I got out of radio two years ago, I, I just stopped, you know, I, I used to keep my eyes peeled on radio station ratings, how everybody was doing in their markets well, and all that. And it's, I don't care anymore. We all like to think we're young and hip and cool. And then you turn the radio on and you go, who the crap is that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dude, we were going down the road one day. And I heard this unbelievable song, these harmonies and this unobstructed production and the no compression on the guitars. And I go, oh my gosh, that is the greatest thing ever. And Amy looked at me and go, you idiot. That's off the Dixie Chicks first record. You worked that. It's <laughs> like, oh my gosh. Wow. Man, and, you got some great Dixie Chicks stories, I'm sure. Oh, you know what? They were, man. Yeah. It, you know, you talk about record sales. When the second album went 
double platinum. We were still st- still selling 30,000 pieces a week of the first album. Yeah. You know, and 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 just, it was like, there was, I mean, I remember Vince Gill when he said, man, there's a new sheriff in town. They, they just changed the world. Oh, yeah. They just dominated that era uh, of, of the business. And thankfully to me, and I'm very biased because I love them, but that music was great. It wasn't it wasn't novelty something. It wasn't bubblegum. If he, if that's even derogative, I don't know. But it was it was great music, and and I really I man I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it was organic. Yeah, and I remember at the height of their popularity, you know, Lyric Street started working Shadaisy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And man, we could not get a a foothold. Yeah, uh, because those uh, you know radio only allows a certain amount of. Uh, a segment of uh, of a kind of music so stupid uh, at one time yep, yeah. on their station so we had a hard time although we did sell a million units on uh, Shadaisy but nothing compared to the chicks were you a good i think i just asked you this but were you were you a good boss a good boss a good bar boss oh boss i think i was yeah um, cuz i was awful I, you know i i'll leave that up to my you know my compadres to yeah. uh, to say, but you know what? Just like I used to love to be a PD at a radio station, yeah, I, I love that challenge of getting a like a, a a team of six or seven DJs to you know perform on the radio. You know, and and uh, if we got an idea, a concept, a promotion, a contest, whatever, I wanted everyone pushing in the right direction. Yeah, I wanted to keep morale at an all time high. So when I went from radio to the record business, and, and then I was in charge of a promo team, I tried to follow that same philosophy. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, let's have fun. Let's take our work seriously, but let's don't take ourselves seriously. Yeah. And if, I think, you know, if you talk to people like Ken, to Ken Vanderan, Kenny Vanderan and uh, some of the other guys, um, I hope that they uh, thought I was a decent boss. You know, I, I try to be a servant leader, yeah. which is don't ask your your uh, staff to do something that you wouldn't oh, yeah. also do. Yep. So, yeah. I always did that with all the all the baby acts. I said, just work as hard as we do. And then if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Yeah. But there's no unturned stone, so. Yeah, it's uh, music is so subjective. Yeah. I mean, it was our job to get 150 radio guys to do what we wanted them to do on any given week, right? <laughs> That's not as simple as it sounds, <laughs> you know? And uh, some guy, you know, who would hate an act that we were representing yeah. would be the first guy to demand a gold plaque when it went, uh, you know, when it went gold. Yeah. So, who knows, you know? And, and, the, and the world of research... Don't get me started. I don't even want to. I don't even want to revisit music research. <laughs> that is such a bunch of crap. Yeah. But somehow we had to play the game. Yeah. And manipulate to the point where we could prove good research versus whatever the radio guy said was bad research. Mm. You know, I, I worked uh, all the consultants. Yeah. You know, all the syndicated shows, <sighs> trying to squeeze extra spins. <sighs> Brutal, man, brutal. Well, in fact, I need a drink right now. All right. 
Turner's Big Radio and Record Adventure. Dude, I love you, buddy. Thank love you, you too, so Bart. much. Hey, man, uh, I'm, I'm proud for you. You, you went in a different, on a different tangent than I did. You know, I, I, I returned to radio mm. uh, after I burned out on record promotion. You used your creative juices to write songs yeah. and play uh, your instruments. And, man, I am so happy for you. Thanks, man. We're both still alive. Yes. Semi-healthy. Happily married? Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, Dale. You. I appreciate you having me on, man. Thanks, buddy. Bye.